Welcome to the podcast of Grace Crossing Church, where life and faith intersect. Good morning. My name is Josh Bertram. I'm the associate pastor here at Grace Crossing Church. It's great to have you with us this morning. It is Palm Sunday, which means what? Not a trick question. Next Sunday is... Easter, yes. Make sure that you're here next Sunday. We have three services, 9, 10, 15, and 11.30. We have, I think, nine, ten baptisms. I know I should know that. I'm sorry. But we have a good amount of baptisms, and we're excited about that. There's going to be baptisms in each service, including some of our children and youth. So let's give a hand to all the amazing parents that love their kids and uh, guided them to that decision. So, we also have a Good Friday service. I was going to get started in my sermon, then I remembered I had one more announcement. We have a Good Friday service, which is going to start at 7 p.m., and I think you guys are going to enjoy it. It's going to be on Friday. Child care is going to be provided, and so please come join us on Friday. Can you guys finish a statement for me? Hindsight is 2020. Hindsight's 2020. So we say that statement a lot. Sometimes we don't even think about what it means. It's kind of just intuitive. We figure we know what it means, but you, you look it up, try to get more of a precise definition of what it means, and it's this idea that from the perspective of an event on the completion side of it, when it's already done, it's past, that you can look back and you can begin to make connections. You can begin to make cause and effect connections. You can see relationships within events and people and circumstances and behaviors and words and all the different things that come together within any event that we look back on and we start to see a more clearer picture of what actually happened in that event. And it's a wonderful thing. We're in a series called Remember. The idea of this series is that we can use our memories, the beautiful thing that God gave us, to look back, remember things in our own lives, and remember Jesus, in particular, Jesus during his last week here on this earth as a, as a man. Leading up to his crucifixion, and resurrection. And memory is an unbelievable thing. You know, I love looking back on different events. I've gotten into the habit of journaling, so I'm trying to go back, look at events, and kind of identify, use my memory to identify the cause and effect relationships. And amazing, it's amazing what you'll start to find out. Like, for instance, um, there is a clear uh, positive uh, linear correlation between my, me having bad grades in high school and the amount of pot I smoked. Isn't that amazing? There's also like this clear correlation between the amount of Oreos I pound per week and the size of my love handles. Has anyone else seen correlations similar to this in your life? I mean, it's amazing when you begin to look back what you can actually find out. But you know, there's this interesting concept. You may have heard of it. You may not have. It's called hindsight bias. 
And what hindsight bias is basically a bias that we can't even help. Within our minds, the further away we get from something, the more likely it is that we believe we knew what was going to happen beforehand. So let me explain that in, in a different way. If you were to write down your prediction of an event and then not look at it, and then three months and six months later, someone were to ask you, did you know? What did you know about that event? Did you predict correctly? You are far more likely to say six months later that you knew what was going to happen than when you actually wrote your prediction. See, our brains are designed to make sense of the world, right? And what do our brains have? What raw material do they have to make sense of it? Well, one of the biggest tools that we have is memory. And as we remember the different things that have happened in our lives, our brains are looking for patterns. We can't even help it. They're looking for patterns. They're looking for connections. And the reasons that they're looking for connections is that we want to predict the future. We want to be able to understand what's going to happen because that comes in handy. For instance, when we want to avoid something negative, it comes in handy when we recognize patterns that in the past have had negative outcomes. And our body remembers that. Our bodies remember things that our conscious memory doesn't even have. The feelings, the pit that we have in our stomach, the tension in our muscles, all the things that come together when we come upon a situation that's similar to something that we have encountered before, our brains are designed to encode that, remember that, so that the next time we face something similar, we can take evasive action. We can get out of that situation or we can control it. The same thing goes for positive opportunities. Our brains are tr constantly trying to learn so that we can avoid the negative, we can take advantage of the pot of positive. And what happens when those two things come together is we start getting overconfident in our ability to predict the future. Because really, we don't know what's going to happen, right? Because it hasn't happened yet. We make predictions, we think that we know, and, and, and many times that has worked out. But we get overconfident. And sometimes we get overconfident. In that overconfidence, we miss something because there's no way we could possibly not understand what's going to happen. Or on the other side of that, we get overwhelmed and crushed by anxiety. I mean, we can't even help it. We are trying to predict what is going to happen, and then in our nature, we're trying to control it. We're trying to make sure that we are going to be okay. It's what we're designed to do, but because of sin, because of the corruption that's occurred in our hearts, we can get off track. We can be derailed. And it's particularly the case that we struggle to really understand what's going to happen when we're in difficult times and difficult situations. When we're in a time of testing, in a time of trial, our ability to really predict the future begins to move on a negative slope. 
Because anxiety and fear begin to control the picture instead of faith in Christ to trust in his word. And instead of reason, we move into the realm of fear and anxiety. And it's understandable. We all, we all do it. You know, life is good and bad. I don't know if you've noticed that. I think if you took a moment to think about it, you would understand that even in the best times, when things are going unbelievably well, there are still bad things in our life. And even at the worst times, when things are terrible, when we are, we, like Pastor Gil talked about last week, we are suffering so badly, we think death would be a relief. There are still good things in life. There is this balance and continuum that is constantly shifting back and forth. And so here's my point. If we don't learn to deal with trial, testing, difficult situations in life, we will be at a serious disadvantage. But luckily, no, not luckily, providentially, in God's grace and his love for us, he did not leave us and has not left us alone to figure things out. No, he's shown us. In his word and, and most clearly through his son, Jesus Christ. See, if you think about the word trial, there are kind of two big categories of meaning for that word. The first one, we think of the gavel, you know, law and order, like silence in my court, you know, and he's hitting the gavel down, and it's in the what? A midst of a trial, right? Which is a legal proceeding where evidence is brought. And some of you may have been in a civil trial, criminal trial, or been a part of something like that, so you understand what is going on there. But then there's another sense of the idea trial, and that is this idea that a trial is a difficult situation, a time of testing that actually tests a person's endurance and their forbearance. Endurance is the ability of anyone or anything to withstand the wear and tear of life. Forbearance, I love the definition of forbearance. Forbearance is patient self-control, especially in difficult situations. And when you have these two meanings of the word trial on the one hand, this legal proceeding on the other hand, this difficult time of testing that's testing us, some of us will go through this part, the legal part, all of us will go through this one. We will all face trial. And in God's grace, he gave us a model on how to do it. And today, as we look at a remarkable passage of Scripture, I think I want us to hold, I would love for you to hold those two meanings simultaneously in your mind. Because Jesus faced a trial of the first kind. And in that trial, it was equivalent to the greatest test of his entire life except the cross to which the trial sent him. 
And as we begin to look at what happened to Jesus and how he acted and what he did, we can learn. It is instructive for us on how we face the litany of trials that we will inevitably have to deal with in this life. The small things from stubbing a toe. I don't know if that's really a trial, but you know, it gets you really mad, right? From financial pressures. From broken relationship to death, to sickness. We are going to face trial. We are not exempt from it. And Jesus shows us a way to face it with godliness and dignity and to make it through. Not unscathed, but whole, complete, and stronger. And I think the key is our memory. The key to making it through these trials is to understand what Christ did, which involves our memory. To understand what Christ is doing, which involves, again, understanding what he did and bringing that as a model here, what he's doing right now in us and through us. And to remember and understand what Christ has promised he will do. So, we go to the trial of Christ. It was a dark day. As a matter of fact, it started at night. Jesus was in the garden with his best friends, closest companions, and each one of them deserted him. Not only did they desert him, but one of them in particular, Judas Iscariot, betrayed him, colluded with the Jewish authorities in a conspiracy against Christ, and they arrested him. A mob came, not legally formed, a lynch trial where they came and they arrested him when he had done nothing to deserve it. They bring him from the garden in Gethsemane. They walk him several miles to the house of Caiaphas, who's the high priest at that time. Being the high priest, Caiaphas had certain legal duties. He had certain authority. And so what we find is we find a moment where Jesus is unfairly taken to the leading Jewish authorities house and they begin to scheme. In Matthew 26:57 says those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas the high priest where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. There's a reason the teachers of the law and elders had been assembled. It was because They had been in a conspiracy to take out Jesus. And so they did it at night, under cover of night, so as not to be seen by the people. They took him unfairly, and what they were doing was an act of selfishness to preserve their own power and to protect themselves from the power of Rome, the great empire who was occupying their nation. And so they bring Jesus to Caiaphas. Caiaphas begins to question them. 
Caiaphas questions Jesus. They try to produce false witnesses. They're trying to look for anything they can do because what they have to do, they have to charge him with something so that they can bring him to Pilate because Pilate, the Roman governor, is the only one who can execute him legally. So they need to have something they can bring to Pilate. And that's what they do. And in the midst of this trial, you ever wonder how Jesus felt? You ever wonder what was going on? You know, we can't see into his heart in that moment, but we can see what he did. And what he did is nothing short of amazing. But you know, I think there's a point that is really important that I think we all understand. And it might sound a little bit like obvious at first or kind of um, maybe even silly, but, but I think I need to make it. Jesus did things. I know your mind is blown right now. Okay, but here's my point. Jesus actually did things. Jesus existed. He isn't a myth. He isn't something made up by the church. No, the church was founded on what Jesus did. Jesus was not founded on the church's scheming. Jesus was a real person with a heart, with a mind, Jesus had a a purpose and a mission. He had feelings. He had thoughts. Jesus was a real person. As a matter of fact, the fact that Jesus existed was tried by the Sanhedrin and the Roman government at that time and was sentenced to death on the cross is an undisputable historical fact. There is more evidence for Jesus than for Caesar. There is more evidence for Jesus than any other person of antiquity. When you think about, actually think about the fact that Jesus existed, we're not pulling this out of anywhere. He was a real person who did real things. And there is more evidence for him and what happened to him of his miracles, of his trial, of his crucifixion, of his punishment, of his burial and of his resurrection from the dead than anything else in the ancient world. So if you are going to question if Jesus existed, then you need to question everything else about ancient history. You know, some of you in here are going to be angry about what I said. You're going to doubt what I just said. That's awesome. You know, I hope you're so upset about what I said that you go and research it. I hope that it ignites a fire in you, that you want to prove me wrong, and so you get on a mission to do so, because I, I, I tell you what will happen. You will see what is real fact, not what's pre- re- represented on CNN or what's represented on any of the other major news syndicates, or or the History Channel, or National Geographic, that you will go to the original sources, 
to the real places and see that Jesus was real. And if Jesus was real, Jesus made some intense claims. He claimed that he was the Messiah and the Son of God. As a matter of fact, he gets questioned in Mark 14, 61 through 62. The high priest questions him, says, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One, because he didn't want to say God? What does Jesus say? I am. Jesus made some unbelievable claims. And what that means is that Jesus was actually the one that all of us have been waiting for. That's what the Messiah essentially is. He's the one who can actually save us. And that's what we're waiting for. See, we're all looking for someone to save us. We're looking for a political um, uh, you know, ideology to save us or a political person to save us. Oh, we're looking for medicine to save us. Or we're looking for science to save us. We want to download our consciousness onto the internet so it can live for 100 years. What the heck? Who wants to live in this world any longer than you have to with all the stuff we have to deal with? We're looking for anything and everything to make us feel like we're safe, like we're okay, like this isn't all there is, like we have real life. And all of that, all of those longings that we have, they are answered in Jesus. He is the one you've been waiting for, and he's the one I've been waiting for. And what we're really waiting for is someone who can deal with our sin and with our brokenness. Someone who can come in and heal what's really wrong with us. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He dealt with our sin like no one else could. Like nobody else could. Because he is the son of God. God himself. See, God always provided a way to deal with sin. He gave his people the law. That law revealed his heart. But even within that law, in the very same pages, he gave provisions for people to give a sacrifice, to literally kill an animal in their place because of their sin, because sin has to be dealt with. And so God made a system within his very law to deal with sin, to deal with our sin to deal with what was going on and that involved the violent shedding of the blood of an innocent perfect animal physically perfect and it was a messy business they had to slit the animal's throat drain its blood all over the altar they had to gut the animal take all the intestines out it was hard work it was laborious work it was tiring work and it all came and it was expensive for the person who was bringing it it costs something. And all of it came together to, to make the point very clear that sin is costly. That sin is treason. Sin has to be dealt with. But the problem was animals are not people. They might be physically perfect, but they are not morally perfect. They do not have the same morality. And an animal life could never take the place of a person's life. And that was the reality. It would be as if you took someone's Mercedes Benz and you drove it and you crashed it and totaled it and to repay them, you gave them a tricycle. And they said, okay, I'll accept that tricycle. And what did they do? They absorbed the cost of your mistake. And that is precisely what God has always done. Absorb the cost of our sin. 
And so that's why we have Jesus. And Jesus there, the perfect, morally perfect, spotless lamb, who is a person, but not just a person, because per- one person can only deal with one person's sin. No, he was the eternal son of God. And so his sacrifice was infinite. It could apply to every single one of us, and it was eternal. And Caiaphas, the high priest, didn't even know what he was doing, but fulfilled his greatest duty to send a sacrifice for atonement for God's people. That's what the high priest did. That was his biggest job. On one day, he made a sacrifice for everybody. And that's exactly what happened. And he brings him to Pilate, who is the representative of all who do not know God, who are not a part of his people. Because the person who sins, they have to bring the sacrifice. They have to take part in it. And Caiaphas, the Jewish leader, Pilate, the Roman leader, came together in one place, unwittingly, not even knowing, and gave the final sacrifice for everyone's sin. What Jesus did is nothing short of breathtaking. He dealt with our sin. But he didn't just deal with our sin. It's not just what he did, it's what he's actually doing. See, Jesus, in the middle of this trial, he is a model for us. He is a model for us on how we can actually begin to behave and feel and and think and what we can do during those times. And not only a model for us in that, but he promises to give us Holy Spirit. Because Jesus raised from the dead and he sent his Holy Spirit. There's the third person of the Trinity, God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit comes and gives us power to deal with the very same patterns and things that we find that Jesus dealt with, that he gave us a model for in his own life. And what is Jesus doing through helping us in our trial? Well, He is helping us to endure the trials and difficulties of life with patient self-control. You know, the endurance is the ability to withstand the wear and tear of life. Patience is that ability to deal with suffering, delay, and problems, and to accept them. Self-control is the ability to maintain a sense of control over what is going on inside of you, what's happening, your desires, your emotions, your outbursts, everything going on in every single way. Jesus perfectly fulfilled that for us. So the question is, what did he endure that we endure? Well, there are many things, but I'll just focus on just a few. The first thing is that Jesus endured rejection and abandonment from his best friends. From the people that loved him more. We're supposed to love him more than anyone else. In Luke 22, we get this 
uh, scripture that talks to us about it, Luke 22, 59 through 62. It's about an hour later they had already arrested him, Luke 22, 59 through 62. And he says, certainly, these are people around the, uh, Peter, certainly this fellow was with the man, that's Jesus, for he's a Galilean. And Peter replied, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And just as he was, was speaking, the rooster crowed. And then get this, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Stared him right in the eyes after he had just denied knowing him. And then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him before the rooster crows today. You will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Now Peter was broken by what happened. What do you think Jesus was feeling? The very person who had said, I'm going to defend you no matter what. I will die for you. Has anyone ever made a promise to you that they broke? Has anyone ever been close to you one day and away from you the next? Maybe your friend at school is all buddy-buddy with you, but then they got a boyfriend or they got a girlfriend and they don't even call you anymore. They won't text you anymore. Maybe your parents actually abandon you the very thing, the very foundation of what a parent should do, they didn't do. They didn't stay with you, they left you. They abandoned you. The pain of broken relationships is unlike anything we face in this life. And Jesus faced it. And he endured it. And Jesus endured it all. And no one was there by his side. So that when he went to the grave after his crucifixion, and when he raised from the dead, he can understand our pain when we are abandoned. And he sends his Holy Spirit. And he sends people within his church to help you. And when we feel abandoned, when we hurt, we have to talk about it. We got to be open to the people God is providing for us. We got to remember the people that haven't abandoned us. And we got to move to them instead of pushing into isolation. Jesus faced isolation so that we don't have to. And he can bring his Holy Spirit to calm and help and heal our hearts. Jesus knows what it's like to feel abandoned. And you know what? Jesus knows what it's like to feel delay in justice, to feel a delay in what was going on. Matthew 26, 59 through 60, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many witnesses came forward. Jesus dealt with delay, and he dealt with the delay of justice. Have you ever been treated unjustly? Has anyone ever gossiped about you that was something not true? Have you ever been blamed for something that you didn't do? Have you ever had someone begin to reject you and call, say terrible things about you behind your back? Have you ever had to deal with a power that just didn't like you and so they made your life a living hell? Or a friend or a bully or someone who was hurt and angry and just wanted to take it out on you? Have you ever dealt with injustice? Yes, I have and so did Jesus. Falsely accused, blamed for something he didn't do, sent to his death. And in those moments, we have Christ who we can feel deeply within our hearts, who empathizes with us. 
who gives us the strength in the face of injustice to be strong about who we are, to stick with our convictions about who he is and what the truth is about this situation. And he gives us the ability to know when to defend ourselves and when to remain silent and allow him to defend us in our place. He provides conversations. He provides coffee with friends. He provides books at just the right time. He provides insight just when you need it. He provides relief when you feel like you can't make it anymore. Jesus understands injustice and knows it. And he endured it. Jesus endured the temptation to disobey the will and purpose of God. Jesus is before Pilate in John 18, 36 through 37. Pilate had just been questioning him. He had been accused of being a king. They had to bring a, uh, a charge to Pilate. So he, they said he is an insurrectionist. He's leading a rebellion. He is claiming to be a king. And you couldn't claim to be a king and be treated nicely by Rome. Rome killed and crucified people who claimed to be kings. And so Pilate, in normal Roman legal procedure, questions him, wants to talk to him, and says, you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born, came in this world, is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. And in Matthew 27, 12 through 14, he was accused by the chief priests and the elders. He gave no answer, it says. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. What's happening here? Well, in Rome, the provinces could bring an accused person, the authorities could bring an accused person to the Roman governor to be executed and killed. But the Roman governor had to question that person. And that person had a right to give a defense. But here's the kicker. If they did not give a defense, they had to be punished. If they didn't defend themselves, the only option the governor had was to enact a sentence and a punishment. And so Jesus, with an unbelievable amount of self-control, instead of defending himself, instead of taking apart piece by piece the argument that had been placed against him, which was, it was just thin and fickle. There was nothing to it. What does Jesus do? He sits there in silence and does not reply one bit to their charges. Why? Because he knew he had to go to the cross. He knew that he had to suffer, that God had a plan that involved pain, but that wasn't it and that wasn't the end there was resurrection that was coming Jesus knew that and that end that um, event and purpose that he had in mind informed his decisions in that moment if you want a good marriage guess what you are going to be tempted to not have one someone's going to give you a lot of tension at the office or the gym or somebody's going to notice you more. If you want to live with integrity and honesty within your business, guess what? You're going to have someone come and say, hey, can't you just give me a little break here when it's illegal? 
Or you're going to have people in power that are going to have influence and they can make your life hard. And they're going to say, I need you to lie for me or else. Jesus knows what it's like to sit there knowing what God wants him to do. To be tempted. Pilate could have let him go. Do you see that? Pilate thought he was innocent. He could have let him go. He could have completely set him free, and yet Jesus knew what God wanted. And he stuck to it, despite the cost. He endured the temptation to abandon God's plan. But he didn't. And because he did that, so can we. Because we have a model, and we have the Holy Spirit, and we have the body. And when we are tempted to be dishonest, we can reach out to a friend in our connection group and say, I'm struggling right now because somebody wants me to be dishonest and I don't know what to do. And they can understand and talk to us and help us. Jesus is building our endurance and our patient self-control in the difficulties that we face. When we're in trial, we need to remember what Jesus did, remember what he's doing, and remember what he will do. In Matthew 26, Jesus is charged again. Give an oath, they say, 26, 63 through 66. Tell us you're the Messiah, the Son of God. He said, you have said so. And then Jesus replies, but I say to you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. What does that mean? Well, Jesus endured the cross because he knew what was coming. That he would be raised to life. That he would be vindicated. And that he would go ascend to be with the Father and that he would send his Holy Spirit. And that when history looks back on Jesus, they will see an innocent man, a strong man, one who endured. But not just that, we know as followers of Christ that Jesus will come again. And when he comes again, he is not going to come in weakness as a baby, but he will come in splendor and glory and strength as an everlasting king. one who has all the authority and filled with grace for his people and love. And every wrong will be righted in that moment. And our wounds will be mended and the abandonment and the hurt and the pain and the difficult situations, we'll be able to look at them and see them as part of his plan because God worked in this entire thing, through the lies of the Sanhedrin, through the weakness of the leadership of Pilate, through the betrayal of Jesus' closest friends, he worked through everything to bring Jesus to the moment that he wanted it to happen. The moment he wanted that secured our salvation and our safety. And God is not done. He is continuing to work and continuing to weave every thread of every story in this world and all of God's people to move to one end when Jesus returns in glory, to take his people with him. And nothing, there is nothing in this world that can stop God's 
plan. And we, in our lives, the details of our lives, the difficulties, the betrayals, the conflict that we have with family and friends, the things going on, the people who gossip, all the stuff that happens, this is all playing a part. God is using these trials and difficulties to build within us a character appropriate and ready to receive their king. He's doing something great. And we got to take that perspective because sometimes it's really hard. But I learned something in the last two weeks. It's the last thing that Jesus does. And I learned it firsthand. I learned it firsthand when my son Malachi was in the hospital two weeks ago. I learned that Jesus did unbelievable things, that he's doing great things in my heart. I know that he will be faithful to his promise of what he'll do, but, and I think even more importantly for me, I learned that while we're waiting for God to bring about the final end that he has, in the meantime, Jesus is with us in the trial. He's there next to us. Ashley and I knew something was wrong with Malachi. He wasn't talking like himself. His speech was slurring and was slow. It was like he was having a stroke. We were told it was the flu, but we knew it wasn't. In our hearts, we knew. And so we took him into the hospital. Twice. He was sent home on Friday night, and then on Saturday, we came back in again, and we knew something was going on. We just couldn't get our hands on it. Something was happening in his brain, and I knew that. Something was going on. And so on Monday morning, Malachi passed out. His eyes rolled in the back of his head. He passed out in front of the attending doctor, and in that moment, he ordered an MRI. And when the time came to go to the MRI, I was with him. And we went down, and he was there for 50 minutes, not sedated, awake, within that MRI, straight-jacketed, couldn't move. And he sat there, and I had to hold his foot, and I had to squeeze him any time he moved, because if he moved, then they had to start it over. So I was there holding him, and I remember so distinctly the Lord putting something on my heart. Right there, I'm sitting there like crying, holding one foot. I have no idea what they're going to say once they get the results of this back. And I'm holding his foot. And in my mind, I'm thinking, man, I would do anything to take his place. I would go and do anything. I so wish that it was me in that MRI and not him. And the Lord spoke to me. And he said, some things you have to go through, but you are never alone. See, if I had gotten in that MRI, they wouldn't have found out what was going on with Malachi. They wouldn't have understood it. 
by its very nature, Malachi had to go through that. Because he was the one who had the sickness. He was the one who needed healing. And he had to do that. But I could sit there and hold his foot and remind him that daddy is there. And I think as we go through these trials, Jesus took our sin. He took the punishment that we deserve. He absorbed that cost. And now we need to go through the process of healing, of being restored from our brokenness. And in that process, there are certain things that we have to go through. Jesus cannot go through them for us. We have to be in that MRI. We have to be the one who's on that table. But Jesus is there with us, right there next to us, holding us, protecting us, being our advocate, talking to the doctors, talking to everyone and all the spiritual forces of evil that rail against us. Jesus is there as our defender, our advocate, our friend, and our savior. And as we go through these things, he will bring out the issues that we have and he'll bring his healing presence and he'll bring the conversations we need and he'll bring the body around us. And that is exactly what happened to us with Malachi. We cannot thank all of you enough for your love and support. If you are not connected to the body, I beg you to get connected to the body, to the church. Because it's unbelievable what God does through his people. And he's there right next to us. We are going to go through trial. We know that. But we can remember what Jesus did. We can remember what he's doing. We can remember what he will do. And we can know that he's with us the entire time. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you sent your son. Thank you that he understands trial and justice. He understands all the things that we go through. And thank you that he did it, took isolation, but sent us your spirit, sent us the body of Christ, and sent us his love. We just ask today, God, that you would help us, whatever difficult trial we're going through, big or small, to remember you and give us insight. And we'll thank you for it, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful day. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Grace Crossing Church, including service times and directions, check us out on the web at www.gracecrossingchurch.net. We hope to see you at one of our upcoming weekend worship gatherings. Have a great day.